We begin this episode of Unfucking the Republic with thoughts on the royal family scandal, a storm that started in the UK but has come crashing ashore in these United States like a Category 5 hurricane. Mm, you okay? Yeah, yeah, almost done. Whew. Now that we got the important stuff out of the way, let's have some fun talking about the American Holocaust. Do you mind telling me how the fuck I'm supposed to transition this? Haha, <laughs> not my problem. If you read the title of this episode quickly, you might have thought I was wading into the dangerous territory of cancel culture. I'm not that brave. Plus, I'm politically incorrect enough and kind of an asshole at times, so I'm confident that my time, too, will come. No, this is a discussion about the most horrific acts the United States has ever perpetrated on a people, which is saying a lot. How we replaced bayonets and bullets with economic tools of destruction to obliterate indigenous people in North America. And how left and right culture continues to blithely ignore such an enormous blind spot. This is the story of how Americans tried to cancel an entire culture. As a point of reference, this is a personal episode for me as I spent many years covering the political relationship between tribes in New York and the state and federal government. And while I'm by no means an expert on tribal politics and identity, I learned a great deal in my time as a writer on such issues. So in the first part of the episode, we'll level set with some definitions before our usual trip down memory lane to examine American and Canadian policies towards Native people. We'll take a quick break with a special bonus feature from the NRA. It's always great to hear from those guys since massacre season is back in full swing after quarantine. On the other side of our special NRA feature, we'll talk about the path forward for Indigenous people in the U.S. and Canada. As always, we'll veer into economics with an examination of our reservation system in the context of our greater economy and spotlight the Bureau of Indian Affairs inside the Department of the Interior, which is headed by an actual Native person for the first time ever. Some thoughts on that as well. And we'll conclude with a plan that bridges our budget and stimulus episodes to this topic and could prove not only life-saving for Indigenous people, but a roadmap for how our entire economic model could work in the future. Ambitious, you say? Sure, but not impossible. So stay tuned to the end of the show for listener shoutouts, book love and pod love, where we call out other great content we think on fuckers would dig, how to stay in touch between episodes, and an update on our new accessibility policy for listeners with auditory processing issues. Ooh, and we have a postscript after listener shoutouts to quickly address the whole Indian mascot issue and put that bullshit to rest. And lastly, my dear unfuckers, remember to leave us a review if you can. It makes a huge difference in our ability to show up on various platforms. And with that, let's begin with a clip from Professor Orange von Fucknugget back in the day to help tune our ears to the conversation at hand. Uh, they don't look like Indians to me, and they don't look like the Indians. Now, maybe we say politically correct or not politically correct. They don't look like Indians to me, and they don't look like Indians to Indians. And a lot of people are laughing at it, and you're telling how tough it is, how rough it is to get approved. Well, you go up to Connecticut, and you look. Now, they don't look like Indians to me, sir. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Yeah, yeah. 
in America, bitch. Where are your ancestors from? You're They're from. not from this country. You're going back to Mexico. You better go back you to where you're from. That was audio from a Karen who literally got bitch-smacked after verbally assaulting a young Native American woman, telling her to, quote, go back to Mexico. See, for many Americans, Indians are a thing of the past, a distant memory, or perhaps fictitious character from a Western. Most of us simply don't come in contact with Indians in the flesh. It's why Karen here, even after she learned that this young lady was Native American and born in U.S. territory, still told her to go back to Mexico. Indians aren't fucking real, so you must be a Mexican. The clip before the introduction, and how about that new fucking theme music, huh? That clip was citizen Donald Trump testifying before Congress about how the Indians being awarded gaming licenses aren't really Indians because they don't look like them. Citizen Dickhead was upset that gaming licenses were being granted to federally recognized tribes in the U.S. because he owned casinos in Atlantic City at the time. What he was referring to in this testimony, as he had many times before and after, was that these Indians on the East Coast looked black, not red. They weren't pure, or I guess running around with a fucking headdress, whooping and scalping and taking white women prisoners. So let's start there and get the surfaced racist shit out of the way. Let's talk about how they look. One of the more fascinating anthropological histories of our young nation is the relationship between indigenous tribes and enslaved African-Americans. Depending upon their journey, mostly in the 1800s, enslaved African-Americans had differing experiences. During America's westward expansion, settlers often engaged in slave trade with tribes. In fact, it was well documented that five nations in particular, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole, not only engaged in such trade, but did so for decades. Furthermore, decades into these arrangements, and even as slavery was officially abolished in the United States, these tribes fought to maintain their ownership over enslaved people or refused to grant tribal affiliation to those who had been freed and settled on reservation territories though this was eventually reversed through several court battles. So no one's off the hook here. Like everything else in our history, it's complicated. Formerly enslaved African-Americans and runaways found slightly better fortune, if you want to call it that, on the eastern seaboard and into the Great Lakes region and up through Ontario, with many territories serving as stops on the Underground Railroad. Mixing between American Indians and African-Americans was extremely commonplace, which is why many modern-day tribes maintain a darker complexion than their ancestors. But a shit-gibbon like Citizen Buttplug, who's orange, wouldn't care about such nuance. As big as Zane and Dinah Laban, they darker than us. Woof! Speaking of nuance, there's the question of what to call them. Are they Indians? Are they Native Americans? Indigenous people? First Nation people? You know what? It's actually a good question. And this is where there is some intersection with cancel culture because language can trip you up. Black, white, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC, which is black and indigenous people of color, but not colored people. Asian, Indian, which Indian? Asian Indian or American Indian? Caribbean American, not African American. Native, gender queer, gender fluid, male, Larry Summers, Southeast Asian, transgender, straight, female, cisgender, black, Asian, minority, ethnic, pangender, two-spirit, non-binary, androsexual, autosexual, demisexual, lesbian, questioning, gay, straight, straight up gay, Elizabeth Warren, gender neutral, race versus ethnicity, gender versus biology, sexuality versus my chances of getting laid after this episode. I don't know. Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! As a cisgender hetero white male of mixed ethnic ancestries who presents as a white male, I know this much. One, there's a good chance I'm not getting pulled over for a broken taillight, and an even better chance that I'll get a loan before you do. And two, this is all very confusing. So how do we address this in the context of the larger topic at hand? Well, for starters, this is a journey that we're all on, 
Trying to get the language right might be annoying, but it's important for many reasons. Not the least of which is that it does teach us a little bit about our history, our place in the world, and how others relate to their own histories. So on one hand, I applaud woke culture for forcing the conversation and insisting that we try to do better. On the other hand, woke culture is a fucking pain in the ass because it tends to focus so much on castigating people for use of language while overlooking people who are doing the work. I'd rather be lectured all day by a social worker in the trenches who doesn't have time to read up on the nuances of gender identity and cultural appropriation over an academic with health benefits and an electric vehicle wagging a finger at me for misidentifying someone's ethnicity. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. Told you I was. There's an old saying in the nonprofit world that you have to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. So yes, let's have it out. Let's have the conversation and challenge one another to do better. But let's not lose ourselves in the special parts of our cultures that make us unique and are a source of pride. Because punishing people outright without having the patience to turn these opportunities into teachable moments is making us afraid to engage and pushing people to even further extremes. Not sure if referring to someone as black is okay any longer? Ask them. Not sure how to address someone who might be transitioning? Ask them. Want to know what to call an indigenous person? Ask them. Here's what I found. In Canada, you're likely to hear the term First Nations people. Out west in the US, I've heard and read indigenous. Here in New York, there seems to be little qualm about the term American Indian, but it's certainly more colloquial and not an absolute. In fact, the one thing I can tell you about reporting on tribal politics is that there are no absolutes. For our purposes, I'll likely use the terms Indian and native interchangeably because that's what I've been given permission to use in my past reporting and among the friends I've made along the way. One term that is not okay, for example, is the one used in the Declaration of Independence. Freedom? Uh, no. Liberty? <laughs> no. I know. Prosperity. What? No, it's the one in this passage. See if you can spot it. Okay. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Ha! Sex! I found it! No. Savage. Like the macho man, Randy Savage? We're going to take a short break, as promised, to check in on our friends at the NRA. On the other side, we're going to look into the heartbreak that is the American Holocaust and then move to the economics and politics of sovereignty. Back after this. The audio you're about to hear was exclusively obtained by the 70-person undercover investigative team at Unfucking the Republic's World Headquarters. The audio was taken from the NRA's undisclosed location and has been verified as 100% authentic. <sighs> no, that's not true. This is satire. Disclaimer, it's not really real. Oh, why do you have to do that? We're rolling. Miss Meadows, I have Mr. LaPierre on line one. Put him through. Wayne, darling, how are you? I'm a little bored, frankly. This quarantine is really getting to me. Pull! Don't I know it, how I long for the days of mass gatherings. Pull! As we've always said, can't have a mass shooting without, without a, a mass, mass gathering. gathering. <laughs> oh, Wayne, you always have a way of... I know that sound. You better go. Gracious me, could it be? We have a cold white. I repeat, a cold white in Atlanta. 
Okay, folks, it's showtime. You know what to do. Act like you've been here before. Where's my frontline contrition team? Oh, there you are. Get over to CNN and MSNBC stat. Where are my mental health specialists, damn it? You, over to Fox. You, to Newsmax. And get the Heritage Foundation people on that Jews show. What's his name? Oh, Ben Shapiro. Attention! We have a cold brown. I repeat, a cold brown in Colorado. This is not a drill. Sweet Jesus, my first cold brown. Time to dust off our terrorist playbook. Sheila, get me the White House. Wait, what's the difference between a cold white and a cold brown? Isn't it obvious? Come on, we have to move quickly. But I don't understand. Damn it, we don't have much time. Listen, a cold white is when a white male kills a bunch of color folk with an assault weapon usually purchased right before they attack. So we push out our mental health messaging, then release a white paper about how pharmaceuticals are damaging the minds of our fragile, young, white male minorities. Wait, what? Pay attention. A code brown is much better for us, but rare. It's when someone with a brown-sounding name, the more Muslim-y the better, commits a mass shooting. Honestly, I've been here for years, and this is my first one. It's super exciting. It's kind of like Christmas. Look alive, people. We've got ourselves a DOJ investigation on the Code Brown. With any luck, we'll have ourselves a war in no time. At least we'll be able to send a few of them back to join their ancestors. That's what the Apache wants, isn't it, Sergeant? To die in battle? They can't lose, can they? Nope. In our episode, The Violent States of America, we spoke about the so-called liberal Hollywood bias fantasy in that we often depict our exploits abroad in heroic terms without addressing the violent imperialistic tendencies that drag us into conflict. The longest-running example of this is the devastating portrayal of the American Indian in film, which wasn't reconciled until the American Indian movement in the 1970s and remains problematic today. The best we can ever come up with to portray Indians, even in modern cinema, is the classic white savior trope, like Dances with Wolves. Now, don't get me wrong, I sob like a fucking bitch at that movie. Ah, oh, every fucking time just gets me. Anyway, so it's no wonder that we harbor images in our subconscious of Indians as these wild, almost fantastical creatures. They're either depicted in ridiculous cultural appropriation terms as spirit-obsessed shamans who regularly commune with dead ancestors and burn nightmares with their dream catchers, or as bow and arrow-toting, horse-riding, naked warriors who dance around bonfires every night. Or if you only see them on the news, they're either alcoholics living in a single-wide trailer living off the government, or fabulously wealthy casino barons in cowboy hats. Every depiction is a caricature. Fun fact, do you know why so many American Indians on reservation land live in trailers? Not just because they're poor. It's not because they prefer trailers to houses with foundations. It's because they can't get mortgages. See, a bank can't foreclose on a permanent structure on Indian land. This small example is one of thousands of fucked up quirks in the system that we invented simply to vanquish an enemy. Europeans began invading the continent in earnest in the 1600s. By 1700, there were approximately 250,000 new American settlers and an estimated 1 million Native Americans representing more than 600 distinct societies throughout what is today the lower 48. This doesn't include Alaskan Natives. 
By 1900, there were 76 million settled Americans and 400,000 Native Americans. From the time the first white man set foot on this land until the turn of the 20th century, we murdered 60% of an entire population. That, my friends, is genocide. That is a Holocaust. This is the American Holocaust. For years, Indian tribes and settlers lived in a constant state of flux. There was trade among them, support from one another at times, conflict at other points. Wars fought among European nations seeking to claim territorial rights in the New World, with allied native forces aligning with different invaders at different points, particularly through the 1700s. By the next century, we were officially America, and rapidly expanding westward in our pursuit of economic development, displacing tribes with ruthless efficiency every step of the way. Then came Donald Trump's presidential hero and role model, Andrew Jackson. A veteran of prior conflicts and populist president, Jackson spared little time in formalizing the young nation's policy towards American Indians by signing the Indian Removal Act in May of 1830. While the law was written as an authorization for the president to, quote, negotiate with tribes for their own removal, it was essentially a declaration of war as tribes were violently expelled from their territories and forced to migrate west in organized territories in the furthest reaches of the continent. This forced expulsion came to be known as the Trail of Tears, and the documentation of this period contains horrors the likes of which most people cannot fathom and will never encounter in their lifetimes. Jackson doesn't own this distinction, mind you. He was simply the most aggressively violent example in a long legacy of presidential disdain for Native peoples dating back to George Washington. Canada followed a similar trajectory, often taking the tribes that had been expelled from the U.S. territories and their own and confining them as well to reservation land, stripped of their rights, their dignity, and their mobility. Indigenous people in North America, who had been steadily displaced for decades already, were faced with a century of atrocities almost unparalleled in modern history. When the Nazi party sought inspiration for the, quote, Jewish problem in Germany and the conquered nations in Europe, they looked to the brutal efficiency of the American reservation system and found an answer. Before the Nazis implemented the final solution, a bloody pragmatic way to eliminate the expense of maintaining concentration camps and forced labor camps, the reservation model was eerily identical. The goal was to first dehumanize and demoralize the conquered people, then to strip them of their cultural identity, religion, language, and heritage. In North America, our white ancestors sought to ultimately force either extinction or assimilation. The goal of the Nazi party was to force expulsion or extinction, but not assimilation. Interesting side note of history, when the Nazis came to the table at the Avion Conference in 1938, they made their decision to expel Jews from Germany public and asked the gathered nations if any of them would accept them. Only one country stepped forward to accept this offer. Can you guess who it was? The United States? Thanks for playing. No. In fact, Roosevelt's emissary at the conference was given instructions to formally deny this request. Only the Dominican Republic raised its hand. They were like, let me get this straight. You want to get rid of your accomplished and intelligent, law-abiding, highly educated Jews? Um, yeah, we'll take them. No other country on the planet said yes, not one. And we know what happened next. Back to our story. The violence against American Indians didn't end with Jackson. In fact, the great emancipator himself was responsible for signing the death warrant for the largest public execution in American history, 
when he ordered the hanging of 39 American Indians for attacking an American outpost, killing several people and taking women hostage. Despite it being considered an act of war, and even though the military tribunal was hastily organized in a complete fucking sham trial that rounded up hundreds of native men indiscriminately, where the defendants literally had no translators and didn't understand the charges being brought against them, and prosecutors unsure they even had the right men, Lincoln signed the order, saying, I ordered a careful examination of the record of the trials to be made. One man was pardoned at the last moment, but 38 hanged that day. Strung together and hooded in a long line, the men joined hands and sang an ancestral song in unison until the floor of the gallows gave way and the 38 men went silent. As our expansion continued to the Pacific and the United States began to look like it does today, the violence continued with the practice of residential schools, a phenomenon that occurred in Canada as well. Native children were ripped from their families in surprise raids and shipped to the residential schools far from their homes. Here they were abused, raped, and often killed, either by force or simply neglect. Many were buried in mass graves. The ones who made it through eventually forgot their native heritage and had no connection to their roots at all. If they were taught anything, it was the Bible. And the average education level of the lucky ones who survived to, quote, graduate, was third grade. The point of this exercise was to kill native language and culture, demoralize the elders, break the spirit of a people who had already lost their land, their food supply, and freedom. These schools were property of the United States and Canadian governments. The last residential school in Canada closed in 1996. Let that sink in. 1996. Reservations are typically resource poor and totally remote. It's impossible to attract doctors and dentists, let alone healthcare specialists and mental health practitioners to these areas. We force them into these territories to exclude them from society and from participating actively in any sort of useful economic trade. When it became unfashionable to simply murder them en masse, it was just easier to relegate them to the furthest reaches of the continent to forget them. And when it was discovered over time that some of them actually had hidden resources like oil and natural gas, well, you can imagine who came a knocking. For example, the Wright's favorite rich pricks, the Koch brothers, made a fortune siphoning oil from native territories. And when they tried to fight back to preserve and protect their ancestral land and the environment, they're met with determined force to this day. At Standing Rock, they used sound cannons and sirens to deafen the protesters standing in open fields, many of them elders. When the weather turned to freezing, they hit them with water cannons and gave many hypothermia. They shot them with rubber bullets. They tased them, arrested the elders, brutalized the warriors. From the tar sands in Alberta, through the Sioux Plains, down to the Amazon, we cut, slash, burn, drill, carve, mine, and steal. It's just our way. I've often heard the counter-argument that this whole poor Indian thing should just be a thing of the past since they have casinos. You know you've heard that too. Tribes lucky enough, I just did air quotes by the way, to be granted federal licenses for gaming facilities do so at great peril because these licenses often include language that places the facility itself into a land trust held by the federal government, which is a direct assault on the theory of sovereignty and a point of contention for many tribal members and governments. The other thing I always hear is that they don't pay taxes, so let's address these quickly. First off, only 30% of all native casino operations are profitable. What? 
That's right. And the average income per household these casinos pay is about $3,000 a year. That's for the profitable ones. Technically, and this is a fucking fact, a tribe doesn't have to ask the U.S. government permission to open a casino. What? Yeah. Fact. So why don't they? Because the suppliers, the manufacturers of the games, the tables, the slots, the hardware, the software, the liquor control systems, the television, and on and on, they won't supply them because the U.S. government will place them on a no-bid list. We fuck them at every turn. So does this mean that Indians operate casinos about as well as Donald Trump? A few years back, and all I did was make money with Atlantic City. It just kept coming in. Atlantic City's skyline had a major makeover this week as the former Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino was blown up in a controlled demolition. No, the reason 70% of casinos on native land aren't profitable is because native land is so fucking remote and no reasonable person would travel there even to gamble. Now to the taxes thing. No, Native Americans don't pay income taxes or property taxes. If that is, they derive their income from a native business on reservation territory and that's also where they live. Here again, because these territories are so fucking isolated and busted, few businesses thrive on reservation land and more than three quarters of affiliated and recognized tribal members live and work off reservation land, which makes both their homes and their income subject to federal taxation. Another thing you should know about Indian politics. The recent appointment of Deb Holland, the first native period to lead the Interior Department, isn't necessarily a welcome development. Now that might sound strange, but there are many in Indian country that are not aligned with this kind of performative victory and do not believe that native people have a place in the government of the conqueror. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, there are few things more complicated than tribal politics and you cannot walk into any situation with a set of standard assumptions. An Indian getting a promotion in a white man's world isn't considered a victory to some. In fact, it's considered acquiescence. So tread carefully on this issue as you talk about progress. Holland has remarkably few resources at her disposal, as we'll cover in the economic section shortly. So she has her work cut out for her. Personally, I love it and I wish her the best, but a lot has to happen for her to succeed. Otherwise, she'll suffer the same fate as Obama, who opened the door for racists to claim that black people had nothing left to complain about because one of their own got the top job. We're gonna move now to reservation economics, but at the end of the episode, after the show notes, there's a brief coda to the show that closes the door on the fucking mascot debate. It's not something I felt worthy of covering in the main text of the show, and I know you on fuckers get it, but sometimes when you're faced with an argumentative mouth breather who's defending something like Indian mascots, it can be hard to find the words to beat them back. Just as the coronavirus exposed the discrepancy in health coverage among black and ethnic minority groups in the US, some deserved attention was finally being given to the abject conditions on reservation land and the lack of general health resources. Beyond the limited access to care and the deplorable way in which the services are doled out in tribal communities, the hard truth is that American Indians suffer from the highest rates of poverty, drug and alcohol addiction, and suicide in the country. The meager carve-outs in the CARES Act and Biden's Recovery Act will serve as a bandage on a broken system as we covered in our last episode. Nowhere is this more true than on a reservation. See, unlike the United States, Canada is embarking upon a long journey called Truth and Reconciliation, a policy and program initiative modeled after similar ones in places like New Zealand. It's a process that legislates that the Canadian government actively participate in the healing process by first acknowledging the truth of their past and current actions before healing and reconciliation can begin. 
and the latter has a strong focus on economic recovery that will be long and arduous, but hopefully successful. The key to this process in Canada is to incorporate economic development among First Nations in a way that doesn't infringe upon their sovereignty. Unlike the way we approach it in the United States, which is, I'll give you this if you give me back a piece of your fucking soul. So here's what I propose, and indulge me on this, because this concept has far-reaching implications beyond just lifting native populations out of poverty. There's little chance we'll ever act upon the truth portion of truth and reconciliation in the United States. But if we can use these policies to inform how we handle poverty broadly in the U.S. and as a proving ground of sorts, then maybe we can get some buy-in from policymakers. I'm talking to you, AOC. You're the one. In 2017, the Department of the Interior reported that production and activities on DOI lands were associated with about $292 billion in economic output. But the output associated with American Indian and Alaska Native businesses was approximately $115 billion, or less than half of DOI output. Which means that the Interior is deriving economic gain from other sources such as energy extraction, logging, recreation, mining, federal lands outside of Indian country, etc. The report was almost boastful, saying that tribal GDP was bigger than Serbia and Uganda, as though that's a fucking good thing. Considering the census estimates that American Indians and Alaskan Natives number about 4.5 million, and there are 561 federally recognized tribes. It's important to also note that there are 63 state-recognized tribes in 11 different states that aren't counted in that number. So let's talk about economic impact and economic potential. According to now-deceased ass-nugget Rush Limbaugh, tribes should be held accountable for one particular export. And how many people have died since the white man arrived here due to lung cancer thanks to the Indian-invented custom of smoking tobacco? I had to include this because I like to think that he was actually right, since it ultimately killed him. Anyway, based on the data from the 2018 U.S. Census cited by Poverty USA, Native Americans have the highest poverty rate among all minority groups at 25%. Household income among Native Americans and Alaskans is a full $26,000 a year less than the median white household income. Mustache pretend journalist John Stossel would like you to believe it's because Indians are freeloaders and that we should actually be taking resources away from them. It's a classic conservative pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mantra that has no fucking basis in reality based on literally every legitimate study ever done on poverty. Our government has made Indian tribes wards of our state. Government manages their land, provides their health care, their schools, gives them food stamps, pays for housing, child care, even burial assistance. His report falsely equated the experience of every tribe in the country with one he considers a success story because its members have great wealth and big houses. The only problem with his ridiculous report that has more than 800,000 views on YouTube and created quite a stir when it first came out is that the so-called tribe he's reporting on is in a densely populated area, isn't a sovereign recognized territory, and isn't actually a reservation. But these details don't matter when you're putting out a poverty-shaming hit piece. So check this out. The total amount of USAID to tribal territories in the U.S. is $1.9 billion. Reduced dramatically, by the way, during the Trump years, and actually not scheduled for much of an increase under Biden, alarmingly. This amount is spread out, again, over 561 federally recognized tribes. Tribes that live in territories we carved out for them, forced them to live in if they wanted to maintain their sovereignty, 
and in the furthest, most resource-poor reaches of the country, 1.9 billion. Last year, we sent 4.9 billion to Afghanistan, 3.3 billion to Israel, and a comparable 1.7 billion to Jordan. Fucking Jordan! In total, we give approximately 40 billion a year in foreign aid, with about 30% on average, of course, earmarked for military support because we just can't support war enough in other places. So what if, and I know this is radical, what if we build on the momentum of the recent stimulus package that replaces credits with direct payments and use the people we fucked over more than any other people in our history as a petri dish of universal basic income? To completely close the household gap and issue direct individual payments of $1,000 a month to each enrolled tribal member in the country, it would cost the country $54 billion a year. Sound like a lot? Too much? Hang on a sec. As we covered in our budget episode, War, Wealth, and Welfare, our military budget is $700 billion a year, and we're about to pull out of Afghanistan, right? And we also know that we don't need all 850 fucking military bases we maintain abroad. So if we just cut 7% of the military budget to fund this kind of initiative, 7 fucking percent, we could still have the largest military budget, more than the next dozen countries combined, and bring service members home to facilitate the administration and security and care on these territories. This subsidy is about 1.2% of our total normal budget before stimulus payments and before Trump's continuing tax cuts. If you factor it against our new normal budget of 5.3 trillion potentially under Biden, it drops to 1%. 1% of our budget to begin reconciling the economic devastation on tribal lands. 1% of the budget to lift every American Indian instantly out of poverty. 1% of our budget to curtail our obsession with military spending and redeploy humanitarian military resources to dispense care and support to a broken people. 1% of our budget to test the theory of universal basic income on a targeted population to prove the concept. 1% of our budget to simply do what's right. This can be our truth, our reconciliation, the beginning of a new America that leads with its heart and heals its soul for real. A new way of economic thinking that puts people and planet at the center and charts a better path forward for those who were here when we landed, those who are still here, and those who deserve grace after all that they have endured. In memory of Brad from Agwazasni, father, iron worker, craftsman, and Mohawk, Indian mascots are racist. No House Republicans voted for you to get a stimulus check. And fuck Milton Friedman. Here endeth the lesson. All right, before we get to listener shoutouts, we wanted to respond to Lenore on Facebook, who reached out a couple of weeks ago about how our use of background music presents a challenge for those with auditory processing disorders. As we mentioned, accessibility is incredibly important to us. So we've added an RSS feed that will be linked in the show notes to allow anyone to listen to the show without a music bed. A quick note that Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, TuneIn, and iHeart do not allow you to manually add an RSS feed, so you can only do this on Apple or other independent podcast apps such as Pocket Casts. Now for the listener shoutouts, David V. and William I. and the Berkshires, El Bacho and Linda C. For supporting the show, for buying us coffee at unftrpod.com. So fucking generous, seriously. The support you're giving the show is unbelievable. To Mark W. for the awesome review and for forwarding a picture of a shredded copy of Atlas Shrugged. Good on you. 
Over to Facebook, D. Jensen, D. Martin, L. Hitchler, and about a dozen more have joined the party. I especially want to highlight the thoughtful discussion with Brian G. and Debbie L. regarding our stimulus episode, thereby proving our thesis early into our audio journey that our listeners are the smartest on fuckers in the potosphere. Stan, thanks for keeping us honest and reminding us about proper attribution for clips. We're going to do better. There's really nothing happening on Twitter, to be honest, mostly because I suck at Twitter. As you can tell, brevity really isn't my thing. What we do have is quite a bit cooking on Substack, where you can subscribe for free to the essays of our show. Tons of new signups this month at unftr.substack.com. More to come on that platform as we continue, so welcome to it, my unfucking friends. Little bit of pod love. If you're interested in this topic, Laura Flanders has a recent episode titled Indigenous People's Power. She's a fucking national treasure, so you should be dialed into Laura no matter what. Additionally, check out a podcast from my friend John Kane called Let's Talk Native. John breaks down native issues in a way that you'll never hear from the established media or any tribal media for that matter. He pulls no punches, tells it like it is, and is a fucking encyclopedia when it comes to Indian country. Ah, book love. As far as book love is concerned, we just added a few more selections to our store at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. When you buy books from our list, it not only supports the show, but it supports local bookstores, which is critical. There's nothing related to this episode, but we have caught up on some general great resources from prior shows, so be sure to check that out. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Many Faces Media. Yes, that's the real name of a real company. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Abe Froman, Sausage King of Chicago, and distributed by newspaper delivery trucks. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail, or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at unftr.substack.com to keep the conversation going between releases. And now, for our bonus screed on Indian mascots. Why are Indian mascots so offensive and racist? Because Indians exist. There are no Vikings, no Raiders, Buccaneers, or Pirates. And when they did exist, they were descriptions of groups that participated in damning activities, pillaging and plundering. Indians are still here, relegated to the poorest, furthest reaches of our nation in order to keep them out of sight and out of mind. But they're still here. Brewers, Giants, and Yankees are descriptive terms, not actual ethnicities. Beavers, tigers, and bears are animals and less than human. You don't see the Irish complaining about the leprechaun. Leprechauns aren't fucking real. Indians exist. They're human. They're here. Brave, in the context it's displayed, is not a descriptive term. It's described directly through visual brand and identity as a nickname for Indians. Indians who are still here. Redskins is derogatory. It's a slur. It's always been a slur. Imagine the New York Hebes, Washington Titsoons, Seattle Chinks, Arizona Wetbacks, or Los Angeles Faggots. That's why the Redskins name had to go, in case you're still confused. Indians are an uncomfortable reminder of our genocidal past. Perhaps had we finished the job and relegated them to the dustbin of history as a people, we could appropriate them more comfortably as mascots. But they're still here. Removing a racist name doesn't mean we're losing history and giving in to some leftist conspiracy to erase the past. It's about acknowledging the existence of a people and allowing them to reclaim their heritage in the simplest of ways. I spent time as a reporter visiting these sovereign nations to understand the otherness of Indian life 
and what it meant to be sovereign, yet without rights. The struggle to maintain the dignity of heritage in the face of extreme poverty. The Indians I met at Ganajo Halege, Onondaga, Oneida, Seneca, St. Regis Aguasasni, Puspatak, Shinnecock, and Cayuga were keenly aware of all of this history. Moreover, they understood the only thing that held them together as a people after years of rape, both physically and economically, was to hold tightly to their heritage, language, symbolism, traditions, music, and humor. This I can tell you, some of the funniest and biggest ball breakers I've ever met are Indians. So when they see themselves celebrated as mascots on helmets for multi-billion dollar corporations, or even just a high school team, it stings. Now add the derogatory element of a slur such as redskin to the mix, and it's easy to understand how this cuts even deeper. Removing these names doesn't erase history. It recognizes the fact that Indians are not part of history. They're part of the present, and hopefully the future.